You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Have you ever noticed how there are really only two kinds of people in church? You've got the first group, which is a group that likes to talk about sin. You've got another group, and that's a group that does not like to talk about sin. Now, the first group is easy to pick out because the sin they like to talk about is not theirs. It's yours. Don't look around. The second group gets two subgroups. So, so, so th- if you're a visual person, you've got group number two and then two subgroups. The first group, subgroup, is the group that doesn't, does not like to talk about sin and never do. This is the sweep it under the rug, that's an uncomfortable conversation, let's just ignore it, pretend that didn't happen. And that's an easy place to be, isn't it? Second group, second subgroup, if you keep, I hope you're tracking with me here, is the group that doesn't like to talk about the problem of sin, but knows that confession and repentance are essential for drawing near to Jesus. And so they're willing to have the hard conversations because the value, the reward, the benefit of being near to Christ outweighs the pain of that hard conversation. The Apostle Paul gets this. He understands. And so he invites the Colossians and us to spend some time having a healthy conversation about the reality of sin. I mean, you heard it, Colossians 3. We know Paul is the kind of guy who likes to write out these sin lists, and in Colossians 3, we get not one but two of those lists. If you thought you escaped the first list, he's got another one coming for you. And so he wants the Colossians to, to understand what a healthy conversation about sin looks like And what's his central exhortation? Perhaps you heard it. Came in verse 5. What should your posture towards sin be? Paul says, kill it. Put it to death. Slay it. Slaughter it. Destroy it. Kill it. And why does he take such a strong posture? Because Paul knows, and he knows... He wants us to know that if we don't kill sin, it'll kill us. In fact, you can call that the bottom line for Colossians 3. Kill sin before sin kills you. The deadliness of sin is assumed throughout Scripture and articulated all over the place. I mean, go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. God creates this beautiful garden, creates human beings to care for it, to make it flourish, and to expand it, to bring God's blessing to the whole world. He gives one instruction, which is a healthy reminder. (laughs) God is God and you're not. Our human response to that, embodied in, Our father, Adam, 
is to transgress. And the consequence of that, if you recall, is death. Spiritual death and distance from God and ultimately physical death. God is the giver of life. Like We don't have that inherently. He doesn't give it to us. We don't have it. And when we insist on being God in our own lives, as Adam did, that separation that ensues between us and God cuts us off from the source of life. And that's dead, deadly. Sin will kill you. That this is in the mind of the Apostle Paul, we're reminded. Romans chapter 6, when Paul's talking about the reality of sin, again, it's not a fun conversation. It doesn't feel good. It's kind of depressing. But it's healthy, necessary. It tells us the, the wages of sin is, you know this. We know this. And yet we can still take really unhealthy postures towards sin. And Paul knows that. It's easy to justify it, to ignore it, to sidestep it, to kind of, eh, it could be worse. <laughs> and so Paul instructs us, he instructs the Colossians, instructs the church, kill it before it kills you. So how does that work? There are a couple concepts that show up in Colossians chapter 3 that help us with this, that help us sort of understand, and not just understand, but embrace the work that Jesus wants to do in us to set us free from things that want to kill us. Anybody want to be free from the stuff that's trying to kill you? Nobody? Like, nobody. All right, well, we can stop and just go out, I guess. Anybody want to be free from the stuff that will kill you? Amen. Amen. First concept for Paul is union with Christ. Now, that may sound like a technical theology term, but it pervades the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you keep your Bibles open, whether it's paper or an electronic device. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are of earth, for you've died. And then he says this, your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's kind of drawing on some language that he used in chapter 2, verse 7. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him through faith in the power of God. And so Paul's idea is, like, like Jesus, in your baptism, Jesus has taken hold of you. He has united you to himself. It's a covenant. You know, the Bible's full of covenants where, where two parties commit themselves to one another unconditionally. Baptism, we're going to celebrate that in just a little bit, is a means of grace where Jesus joins us to himself surprisingly, mysteriously, and beautifully, and brings us into his covenant. And what does he do in that covenant? He shares everything he's got with his brothers and sisters. Jesus says, if it's mine, I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to share with you all the benefits that are my life, all the benefits that come with my death, and all the benefits that come with my resurrection. So Paul has this shape, like this gospel shape. Jesus died for us, and he was raised for us. His death purchases our redemption. His blood forgives our sins. If, if the wages of sin is death, Jesus has paid the wages. 
If the consequences of sin is death, Jesus has absorbed the consequences for me, so I don't have to. Remember, he's also the one who decides the consequences. We don't want to shift into this God the Father dumping some anger, wrath thing on the Son. The cross is not divine child abuse. In the Gospels, Jesus describes himself as the judge. In Acts, we are told that it is Jesus who will stand as judge. And so when we hear that Jesus has died for us, it's not as if God is over there just sort of knocking the Son of God around because he's this angry deity up in heaven who's got to punish somebody. But that's the idea we have. And I run into this kind of stuff all over the place, and it's this caricature. Like, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that the triune God loves us. The triune God loves us so much that he takes a stunningly antagonistic posture towards the things that want to kill us. Jesus says, sin wants to kill you. It wants to destroy you. So I'm going to show up, and I'm going to take the consequences that I require on myself because I love you and because I want to protect you from the thing that wants to kill you. That's what happens on the cross. That's what the gospel proclaims for us. The gospel is Jesus saying, I want to save you and protect you from the thing that will kill you. And he does it by dying. And he exhausts all the power of sin and death. He exhausts all the consequences so that when we are joined to him, he shares his forgiveness, his righteousness, his wholeness, his beauty, his glory, his whole self. That's union with Christ. Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, captured it. All in him is mine. Everything he's got, he shares it with us. That pervades Paul's thought, and it underlies his command to kill sin. If Jesus has taken hold of you and brought you into his covenant, things are different. Don't give yourself to the thing he has set you free from. It'll kill you, and he died to rescue you from it. Union with Christ is the foundation of the command to kill sin. There's another concept here we'll talk about, and then this will lead us into kind of some of the practical stuff. You may have noticed Paul talks about the old self and the new self. Maybe we could call it the old you or the old me and the new you, the new me. This shows up in verses 9 and 10. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with a new self. So there's this movement for Paul. Like when you're outside Christ, when you're not joined to Christ, there's an identity that cover that 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 that.
create certain behaviors. I'm far from Christ, I'm going to behave in a way that a person far from Christ behaves. And it's not healthy, and Paul describes that sort of life with his lists. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language, greed, evil desire, fornication, impurity, unholy passion. Like those are aspects of the character of people who, are far, who have not been joined to Christ. That's the old self. But when Jesus takes hold of us, he gives us a new identity, he gives us a new name, he gives us a new family, he gives us himself and begins to make us new. And different Bible writers talk about this in different ways. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, this is the new birth kind of thing. Here, Paul just calls it the new self, the new person, the new you, the new us. And if your identity's changed, if your relationship to God has changed, and your practice, your behavior, our behaviors are attached to our identity, right, because we kind of act in a way like, like we live out who we are, don't we? We behave according to our identity. Paul says if, you, if there's a new you, if you have a new identity, union with Christ, then there's to be some new behaviors, some new practices. Live out the character of the new family that you're a part of. That doesn't mean sin won't still try to kill you, because it will. It doesn't just turn loose all easy like. <laughs> we all know that from experience, don't we? We all know that from experience. The difference is that you now have what you need to successfully put it to death. You didn't before. Before you were joined to Jesus, you didn't have what you needed to successfully put sin to death. Now that you've been joined to Jesus, you do have what you need. Namely, Jesus. <laughs> and His presence through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So the old you sins. In Paul, the new you loves. And you can't do those two things at the same time, can you? Like you can't love Jesus and rebel against Him at the same time. Like if I'm sinning against Jesus... I'm implicitly choosing to say, Jesus, in this moment, in this action, I don't love you. I love me more and this more, whatever it is. As I was thinking through this text, it was striking to me to think about what Paul does not say about sin. He says, kill it. But what does he not say? He doesn't say, cope with your sin. He doesn't say, manage your sin. He doesn't say, your sin is a fact of life, Deal. just learn to live with it. The reason it's striking that he doesn't say that is because we kind of live like that a lot, don't we? I'm only human. What am I supposed to do? I'm a sinner. Sinner, sin. I can't help it. We just kind of live into that, don't we? But you never find those kind of 
sentences in the letters of Paul, or anywhere in the Bible for that matter. Paul doesn't say, you're a sinner, you just have to cope with that. He doesn't say, you're a sinner, you know, like, just get used to it. What does he say? I'll read it one more time. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly. Kill it. No mercy. Slay it. Destroy it. And so his lists function kind of like diagnostic tools, don't they? And it's easy to see those things in other people. Remember that first group? The hard part is allowing the Spirit of God to take that list and lay it over my life, our own lives. But he can, and he will. Not because he wants to make you feel bad, because he wants to set you free from the thing that's trying to kill you. He wants to save you from something that wants to kill you. I'm struck by the contrast that Paul offers us. We've got this stunningly depressing list of sins. But then in verse 12, the language kind of shifts, doesn't it? It's God's chosen ones, like ones that God, God has laid his hand on you. He's taken you to himself in Jesus. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, right? So here's this new identity in Christ, chosen by God, holy, set apart, loved by him, loved by him. New identity, new relationship to God. What's the outcome of that? A new set of behaviors. Old me, unrelated to God, far from him, a certain set of behaviors. New me, newly related to God, new set of behaviors. And what do they look like? Well, they look a lot different than the other set. Clothe yourselves with compassion instead of anger. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. And above all, above all, clothe yourselves with love. Clothe yourselves with love. This is the transformed you, me, us. This is what it looks like for Christ to rule in our hearts. That's the next instruction. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. If the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, we will embody the character of the one who has taken hold of us. I mean, this is, this is Jesus' character. <laughs> right? Compassion, humility, patience, forgiving. Who does that describe? It describes Jesus. Who should it describe? 
all of us. So the transition here, the, 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 the movement, is that the people of God who were formerly sinners now begin to embody the character of Jesus. The character of Jesus is the character of God. What would have to change in your life for that to happen? Do you want that to happen? Or are you content with sin management? G.K. Chesterton, British Catholic author, once said this, A man may lie still and be cured of a malady, a sickness, but he must not lie still if he wants to be cured of a sin. On the contrary, he must get up and jump about violently. What's he saying? He's simply saying, if you're sick, go to bed. Your body needs to rest. But if the sickness you want to deal with is your sin, you better get aggressive. You better be ready to fight. You better be ready to jump about and take a violent posture toward your sin. Sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? Put it to death. Kill it. What should the posture of a Christian be toward the reality of sin? Kill it. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.